So the daughter from a um, prominent political family recently advocated for keeping books that have sexually explicit pictures and descriptions in elementary school libraries, saying that removing them violates the First Amendment and somehow proves harmful to our children. Also citing the First Amendment, a federal judge in Pennsylvania ordered that Satan clubs now be allowed in public schools. During this same period of time, a 12-year-old boy was removed from his school for wearing a shirt that simply said, there are only two genders. The school authorities claimed that the shirt made other children feel unsafe. At the very least, the logic in these instances seem inconsistent to me. But more importantly, only one of those positions is scriptural, while two of them are not. I suppose some might say that I am being political, but honestly, I'm just being biblical. It would be wrong for me to avoid certain cultural topics out of fear, whether it be fear of losing people from the pews or fear of being persecuted for that which I hold to be true. Christ's church must be a bold church, one that never shies away from consistently, prayerfully, and lovingly communicating what is in keeping with God's word. That is what we see in the early church. It was a church bold in its stance, bold in its prayers, and bold in its giving. It's what we find exemplified in our text this morning from Acts chapter 4, where I'll be reading from verses 23 to 37. This is God's word. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of this earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. First, a bold church is bold in its stance. Jesus was crucified because of his testimony to the spiritual truths in an age that was characterized by materialistic, nationalistic thinking. We see this same hostility toward the apostles in verse 18 of this chapter where the ruling Sadducees tell Peter and John not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus. You see, these Sadducees were especially hostile to the teaching of the resurrection of Christ, which verse 2 shows us. It is the same type of battle that the Apostle Paul identifies as carrying on for us, saying in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The nature of our opposition is not primarily physical. It's spiritual. G.K. Chesterton once said, idolatry is committed not merely by setting up false gods, but also by setting up false devils, by making men afraid of war or alcohol or economic law when they should be afraid of spiritual corruption and cowardice. The apostles and members of the early church realized the hostility toward their message about spiritual realities in Christ was only going to worsen, but they spoke the word of God with boldness nonetheless. And the word boldness suggests taking a daring stance. In Acts chapter 4, it refers to clear expressions of truth where there could be no mistaking one's meaning, no hint of hesitation, no sense of apology, no backing down from what the Christian holds dear. Now is not a time for the church to be silent and on the sidelines. J.C. Ryle wrote, I am convinced that the world needs no new gospel. The world needs nothing but bold, unflinching teaching of the old past. In other words, the church must remain unflinching in saying, thus saith the Lord. Peter Cartwright was a great circuit-riding Methodist preacher in Illinois. One Sunday morning when he was scheduled to preach, his deacons told him that President Andrew Jackson would be in the congregation. They cautioned Cartwright not to say anything that might offend the commander-in-chief. So let me tell you what Cartwright did. He stood to preach and he began. I have been told President Andrew Jackson is here. And so I should be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent and give his life to Jesus. That's guarded remarks, wouldn't you say? Or take General Hans von Zieten. 
In the 1700s, the king of Prussia, Frederick the Great, called all his generals together for a meeting. However, von Zieten refused to come because he had duties with his church that night concerning the Lord's Supper. A few nights later, all the generals met to dine again with the king. And this time, von Zieten was in attendance. And it led Frederick the Great, along with the other generals to joke about him openly and about his observances within the church, especially the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Von Zeden at that moment stood and said to this intimidating earthly ruler, my liege, there is a greater king than you, a king to whom I have sworn allegiance even unto death. I am a Christian man. I will not sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonored, his character belittled, and his cause subject to ridicule. I shall withdraw myself, sir. Silence fell across the room because the other generals knew that such an act of defiance could mean death. Except Frederick the Great was so struck by von Zieten's courage that the king begged him to stay, promising him to never again demean the things of Christ. Long live the tribes of Cartwright and von Zieten. May we not be afraid to boldly stand before presidents and kings and worldly leaders and generals and the masses for the glory of Christ. There are various ways for us to stand courageous with and for the gospel, and we must do so. It might not look like Cartwright. It might not look like Van Zieten, but our speaking up for the spiritual realities found in Jesus Christ is the only, listen to me, it is the only true path to deliverance and healing in other people's lives, regardless of what they may think. The promises of the prince of this age, which holds so many individuals captive, are built on nothing but lies. And these lies ultimately leave people confused, deceived, depressed, angry, empty, ashamed, and on a path to self-destruction. So with all that is within me, I implore those who find themselves on such a path to do as A.T. Slaughter read last Sunday, taste the Lord and see that he is good. Amen. Give your life to Jesus. It is the better way. It is the only way. The Lord says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Second, a bold church is bold in his prayers. This is the case because we know the one to whom we pray. We pray to a sovereign Lord. We pray to the maker of heavens and earth and of all that is in them. We pray to the God who rules the nations and who reigns over all the events of history. The gathered church in our text prays in one accord the words from Psalm chapter 2. And that passage takes us down a philosophical path. 
but a path that helps us find where we find our confidence in praying. Step one, the triune God who is three persons but one substance creates the universe out of an outflow of his perfect love because he is threefold in his being. It is part of his very essence to manifest and share love. God thus creates all things because of his love. Step two, shared love could never exist among robots. Had the Lord created humanity endowed with his absolute perfections, he simply would have made mini-me's rather than free beings. And yet, individuals made without absolute perfections would necessarily possess the capacity, the capability of imperfection. And in light of this certainty, Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 1 that before the foundation of the world, the triune God determined the Son would die for our sin. In other words, God redeems a bride because of his love. He creates from love. He redeems from love. But did you catch the phrase before the foundation of the world? You need to return for a moment to Peter's Pentecost sermon in chapter 2, verse 23. This man, Jesus Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In a sermon on 1 John chapter 5, Michelle Combs' brother-in-law, who is a pastor in Canada, used an illustration from The Princess Bride. It's where uh, the hero Wesley is in a sword fight with Domingo Montoya my favorite character from the film, my name is Domingo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Right? Okay. Now, when it's clear that Wesley is beating Montoya, right? Montoya says, I admit it. You're better than me. And Wesley says, why are you smiling? And Montoya says, because I know something you don't know. I am not left-handed. And he switches Right? And then he's got Wesley on the precipice of the cliff. And it looks like Wesley is done for. And Wesley says, but I know something you don't know. Montoya says, what's that? He says, I'm not left-handed either. <laughs> right? And then he goes on and he beats Montoya. The point that Pastor Rick passes along to his congregation is that we as Christians know something that changes everything. The early church prayed to the sovereign Lord saying of Jesus, the one whom you anointed. So they knew something that changes everything. The cross was not a place of defeat. It was one of predetermined victory. When the nations rage, God but laughs. And therein, church, is the confidence behind our prayers. 
Psalm 29, verses 10 and 11 reads, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. What does that mean? <laughs> In the face of sickness and death, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. What does it mean in the face of civil unrest and war? The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. What does it mean in the face of misguidedness and evil? The Lord is enthroned forever. It does not happen apart from his knowledge. The nations rage, but he laughs. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Thou rulest in might, naught changes thee. All praise we would render. Oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Being assured of all this, what then does the early church pray? They say, and now, Lord, look at their threats. They knew the ill will was growing against them in the outside world, but they don't pray that the threatenings will cease. No. No. Instead of praying for the threatenings to cease, they pray for the very thing that led to the apostles' rest in the first place, the healing of a man in the name of Jesus, to continue. So too, Let's you and me be praying with fervor that people would experience healing through the proclamation of the gospel, a bold proclamation of what is true in Christ. Amen. Instead of praying for the threatenings to cease, they pray that they would remain bold in their convictions concerning Jesus Christ. So too, let us pray with fervor for courage to never back down from any suffering, from any alienation that might come, for standing up for what is true in accord with the gospel. Verse 31 says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I disagree with those who suggest that such an event is either a new or mini Pentecost. You see, Pentecost represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a one-time event in the life of a believer. But Christians do have many fillings of the Holy Spirit. And this was a fresh filling in order to prepare them to continue testifying about the risen Christ with clarity and courage. Despite all the counter-propaganda of the Sadducees, the church received divine enablement to present the facts of Jesus and to proclaim his resurrection. Despite all the counter-propaganda of our governments and our media streams, when we pray for boldness, the Holy Spirit will also empower us to stand up and speak out for what is right and true. 
what pastors of our churches and people in our pews need to be praying for more is that we might boldly maintain right convictions and that we might daily receive a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to stand up for those convictions. Are we praying for the Holy Spirit to reign in us? Finally, a bold church is bold in its giving. Because Christians are baptized in the Holy Spirit, they place greater value on spiritual things than they do on material possessions. The infilling of the Holy Spirit gives to Christ followers a selfless, sacrificial attitude. You might also say it like this, Christians are not just persons of conviction, they are persons of compassion. Believers evidence living in harmony with the life of Christ and with what he says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Sometimes people in the church are surprised at what I teach concerning the tithe. You may be surprised yet still. I tell people that giving 10% in principle remains a good number to direct one's tithes and offerings. But on this side of the cross, I am hard pressed to find any command in the Bible for a specific percentage. Observe carefully in the early church how there were no rules, regulations, or compulsion. There was only voluntary, generous, grateful, and loving giving. Think a new command. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then in verse 12, Paul adds, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians, set alongside what we find in Acts 4, 32 to 37, shows that part of our giving in the church helps those who are not in a position to give anything at all. In other words, while some people cannot begin to even touch 10% in a tithe, others should not settle for merely 10% in their tithe. Joseph was part of a wealthy family. I believe he was a single man. The apostles called him by the name Barnabas, and that name actually carries two meanings, son of exhortation and son of encouragement. Now, fitting enough, those are the same two key meanings associated with the paraclete who Jesus promises to send. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all things. Think exhortation. And Jesus said that he would not leave the disciples as orphans, but that he would send to them the Holy Spirit. Think encouragement. So Barnabas was a spirit-filled man. In fact, every mention of him in Acts pictures him as either exhorting or encouraging others. Thank Holy Spirit. And more than anything, Barnabas desired to advance the glory of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is the main function of the Holy Spirit. 
And that is why Barnabas sells his land. That is why he gives it to the church. He viewed giving as a spiritual act of worship and as bearing eternal significance. This text, however, is in no way associated with communism or socialism. A communist or socialist structure exists in order to take from what belongs to some people and then redistribute it to others. But nothing was ever taken by the church from Barnabas. Nothing was ever taken by the church from any other believer. These individuals simply chose to boldly and lovingly give in response to a John 13:34 command to love one another as Christ has loved us. I remember friends of mine coming to me after selling one of their properties. They said to me, we are about to come into a sum of money. We want to know how you would like for us to designate our gift to the church from the sale of this house. You see, that's the mindset of a Barnabas from verse 37, who sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. To me, the question is not really about how much you give, but that you're giving, and that you're giving for the right reasons. Not from a spirit of the law, not under compulsion, but from love. Love. Love for one another. Love for the church. Do you give to support the ministries of the church so that biblical exhortation can continue? It's always perhaps uncomfortable for a pastor to read this, but it's in the scriptures, and I want you to hear it. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work as preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Why do we think that CEOs should be paid so much and pastors be paid so little? just a question. Do you give to support the needs of others as a means of tangible encouragement? Whether within the church or through some other Christian organization that the Spirit leads you to support? Hebrews 13, 16 says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Do we love to give? Do we give because we love? It has never been the purpose of the church. Never. It has never been the purpose of the church to build big, beautiful buildings. The purpose of the church is to build up bold believers who are convicted, prayerful, and generous. That's the purpose of the church because you are the church. In this way, I truly believe in this way we are called together to be God's committed, united people who are bold, 
who are bold to stand for what is true, who are bold to pray big prayers to a sovereign God, and who are bold to give from a spirit of love. Let it be so at Winstanley. Let us be a people called and committed to God. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we need a fresh filling from the Spirit that we would be emboldened that we would stand for what is true and right. That we would pray knowing that you are sovereign and that nothing, nothing happens apart from your will. It changes everything. And Lord, that we would be compassionate and loving and generous with how we give. Make us a bold people. Build us up as your church. Christ, we pray in your name. Amen.